Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week we'll be doing something a little bit different than usual. This week we'll be reading the Mahasatipatthana Sutta in its entirety and discussing it afterwards. The Mahasatipatthana Sutta is part of the Pali Canon, and it belongs to the Samyutta Nikaya and the Samyukta Nigama, which are some of the oldest collections of Buddhist texts that we have today. We will be using the version in the Theravada Buddhist Dika Nikaya. The name of the sutta translates to The Greater Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness. This text is explicit instructions for meditation, or sati, and is the foundation for contemporary vipassana meditation. Vipassana means insight, so this type of meditation is meant to reshape a person's views and beliefs about themselves, their feelings, their sensations, and the world around them. We hope you enjoy it. Thus have I heard, once the Lord was staying among the Kurus. There is a market town of theirs called Kamasadama, and there the Lord addressed the monks. Monks, Lord, they replied. And the Lord said, There is, monks, this one way to the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the gaining of the right path, for the realization of Nibbana, that is to say, the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Here, monks, a monk abides contemplating body as body, ardent, clearly aware, and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. He abides contemplating feelings as feelings. He abides contemplating mind as mind. He abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects. Ardent, clearly aware, and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. And now, monks, does a monk abide contemplating the body as body? Here, a monk having gone into the forest, or to the root of a tree, or to an empty place, sits down cross-legged, holding his body erect, having established mindfulness before him. Mindfully he breathes in. Mindfully he breathes out. Breathing in a long breath, he knows that he breathes in a long breath. Breathing out a long breath, he knows that he breathes out a long breath. Breathing in a short breath, he knows that he breathes in a short breath. And breathing out a short breath, he knows that he breathes out a short breath. He trains himself, thinking, I will breathe in, conscious of the whole body. He trains himself, thinking, I will breathe out, conscious of the whole body. He trains himself, thinking, I will breathe in, calming the whole bodily process. He trains himself, thinking, I will breathe out, calming the whole bodily process. Just as a skilled turner, or his assistant, in making a long turn, knows that he is making a long turn, or in making a short turn, knows that he is making a short turn, so too a monk, in breathing, in a long breath, knows that he breathes in a long breath, and so trains himself, thinking, I will breathe out, calming the whole bodily process. So he abides contemplating the body as body internally, contemplating the body as body externally, contemplating body as body both internally and externally. He abides contemplating arising phenomena in the body. He abides contemplating vanishing phenomena in the body. He abides contemplating both arising and vanishing phenomena in the body. Or else, mindfulness that there is a body is present to him just to the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world, 
and that monks is how a monk abides contemplating body as body. Again, a monk, when walking, knows that he is walking. When standing, knows that he is standing. When sitting, knows that he is sitting. When lying down, knows that he is lying down. In whatever way his body is disposed, he knows that that is how it is. He abides contemplating body as body internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that, monks, is how a monk abides contemplating body as body. Again, a monk, when going forward or back, is clearly aware of what he is doing. In looking forward or back, he is clearly aware of what he is doing. In bending and stretching, he is clearly aware of what he is doing. In carrying his inner and outer robe and his bowl, he is clearly aware of what he is doing. In eating, drinking, chewing, and savoring, he is clearly aware of what he is doing. In passing excrement or urine, he is clearly aware of what he is doing. In walking, sitting, standing, falling asleep, and waking up. In speaking, or in staying silent, he is clearly aware of what he is doing. So he abides, contemplating body as body, internally, externally, and both internally and externally. He abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world, and that, monks, is how a monk abides contemplating body as body. Again, a monk reviews this very body from the soles of the feet, upwards, and from the scalp downwards, enclosed by the skin, and full of manifold impurities. In this body there are head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, pleura, spleen, lungs, mesentery, bowels, stomach, excrement, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, tallow, saliva, snot, synovic fluid, urine, just as if there were a bag, open it at both ends, full of various kinds of grains such as hill rice, patty, green gram, kidney beans, sesame, husked rice, and a man with good eyesight were to open the bag and examine them, saying, this is hill rice, this is patty, this is green gram, these are kidney beans, this is sesame, this is husked rice, so too a monk reviews this very body. In this body there are head hairs, etc. So he abides contemplating body as body internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that, monks, is how a monk abides contemplating body as body. Again, a monk reviews this body, however it may be placed or disposed, in terms of the elements. There are, in this body, the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the air element, just as if a skilled butcher or his assistant, having slaughtered a cow, were to sit at a crossroads with the carcass divided into portions, so a monk reviews this very body in terms of the elements. There are in this body the earth element, the water element, the fire element, the air element. So he abides contemplating body as body internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that, monks, is how a monk abides contemplating body as body. Again, a monk, as if he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, discolored, 
festering, compares this body with that, thinking, this body is of the same nature. It will become like that. It is not exempt from that fate. So he abides contemplating body as body internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that, monks, is how a monk abides contemplating body as body. Again, a monk, as if he were to see a corpse in a charnel ground, thrown aside, eaten by crows, hawks, or vultures, by dogs or jackals, or various other creatures, compares this body with that, thinking, this body is of the same nature, it will become like that, it is not exempt from that fate. Again, a monk, as if he were to see a corpse in a charnel ground, thrown aside, a skeleton with flesh and blood, connected by sinews, a fleshless skeleton smeared with blood, connected by sinews, a skeleton detached from the flesh and blood, connected by sinews, randomly connected bones scattered in all directions, a hand bone here, a foot bone there, a shin bone there, a thigh bone there, a hip bone here, a spine here, a skull there, compares this body with that body. Again, a monk, as if he were to see a corpse in a charnel ground, thrown aside, the bones whitened, looking like shells, the bones piled up, a year old, the bones rotted away to a powder, compares this body with that, thinking, this body is of the same nature, it will become like that, it is not exempt from that fate. So he abides contemplating body as body internally, contemplating body as body externally, abides contemplating body as body both internally and externally. He abides contemplating the arising phenomena of the body, contemplating vanishing phenomena of the body. He abides contemplating both arising and vanishing phenomena in the body. Or else, mindfulness that there is a body is present to him just to the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that, monks, is how a monk abides contemplating body as body. And how, monks, does a monk abide contemplating feelings as feelings? Here, a monk feeling a pleasant feeling knows that he feels a pleasant feeling. Feeling a painful feeling knows that he feels a painful feeling. Feeling a feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant, he knows that he is feeling a feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant. Feeling a pleasant sensual feeling, knowing that he feels a pleasant sensual feeling. Feeling a pleasant non-sensual feeling, he knows that he feels a pleasant non-sensual feeling. Feeling a painful sensual feeling, knowing he feels a painful sensual feeling. Feeling a painful non-sensual feeling, knowing he feels a painful non-sensual feeling. Feeling a sensual feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant, he knows he is feeling a sensual feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant. Feeling a non-sensual feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant, he knows that he is feeling a non-sensual feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant. So he abides contemplating feelings as feelings internally. He abides contemplating feelings as feelings externally. He abides contemplating feelings as feelings internally and externally. He abides contemplating arising phenomena in the feelings, vanishing phenomena in the feelings, and both arising and vanishing phenomena in the feelings. Or else, mindfulness that there is feeling is present to him, just to the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness. And he abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. And that, monks, is how a monk abides contemplating feelings as feelings. 
And how, monks, does a monk abide contemplating mind as mind? Here, a monk knows a lustful mind as lustful, a mind free from lust as free from lust, a hating mind as hating, a mind free from hate as free from hate, a deluded mind as deluded, an undiluted mind as undiluted, a contracted mind as contracted, a distracted mind as distracted, a developed mind as developed, an undeveloped mind as undeveloped, a surpassed mind as surpassed, an unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed, a concentrated mind as concentrated, an unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated, a liberated mind as liberated, an unliberated mind as unliberated. So he abides contemplating mind as mind internally. He abides contemplating mind as mind externally. He abides contemplating mind as mind both internally and externally. He abides contemplating arising phenomena in the mind. He abides contemplating vanishing phenomena in the mind. And he abides contemplating both arising and vanishing phenomena in the mind. Or else, mindfulness that there is mind is present just to the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness. And he abides detached, not grasping at anything in the world. And that, monks, is how a monk abides contemplating mind as mind. And how, monks, does a monk abide contemplating mind objects as mind objects? Here, a monk abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in respect to the five hindrances. How does he do so? Here, monks, if sensual desire is present in himself, a monk knows that it is present. If sensual desire is absent in himself, a monk knows that it is absent. And he knows how unarisen sensual desire comes to arise, and he knows how the abandonment of arisen sensual desire comes about. And he knows how the non-arising of the abandoned sensual desire in the future will come about. If ill will is present in himself, a monk knows that it is present. And he knows how the non-arising of the abandoned ill will in the future will come about. If sloth and torpor is present in himself, a monk knows that it is present and he knows how the non-arising of the abandoned sloth and torpor in the future will come about. If worry and flurry is present in himself, a monk knows that it is present, and he knows how the non-arising of the abandoned worry and flurry in the future will come about. If doubt is present in himself, a monk knows that it is present. If doubt is absent in himself, he knows that it is absent, and he knows how unarisen doubt comes to arise, and he knows how the abandonment of arisen doubt comes about, and he knows how the non-arising of abandoned doubt will come about in the future. So he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects internally. He abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects externally. And he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects both internally and externally. He abides contemplating arising phenomena in mind objects. He abides contemplating vanishing phenomena in mind objects. He abides contemplating both arising and vanishing phenomena in mind objects. Or else, mindfulness that there are mind objects is present just to the necessary extent for knowledge and awareness. And he abides detached, not grasping at anything in the world. And that, monks, is how a monk abides contemplating mind objects and mind objects in respect of the five hindrances. Again, monks, a monk abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in respect of the five aggregates of grasping. How does he do so? 
Here among things, such is form, such is the arising of form, such is the disappearance of form, such is the feeling, such is the arising of feeling, such the disappearance of feeling, such is perception, such the arising of perception, such the disappearance of perception, such are the mental formations, such are the arising of mental formations, such are the disappearance of mental formations, such is consciousness, such the arising of consciousness, such the disappearance of consciousness. So he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects internally. So he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects externally. So he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects both internally and externally. And he abides detached, not grasping at anything in the world. And that, monks, is how a monk abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in respect of the five aggregates of grasping. Again, monks, a monk abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in respect of the six internal and external sense spaces. How does he do so? Here a monk knows the eye, knows sight objects, and he knows whatever fetter arises dependent on the two. And he knows how an unarisen fetter comes to arise. He knows how the abandonment of an arisen fetter comes about, and he knows how the non-arising of the abandoned fetter in the future will come about. He knows the ear and knows sounds. He knows the nose and knows smells. He knows the tongue and knows tastes. He knows the body and knows tangibles. He knows the mind and knows mind objects. And he knows whatever fetter arises dependent on the two. He knows how an unarisen fetter comes to arise. And he knows how the abandonment of an arisen fetter comes about. And he knows how the non-arising of the abandoned fetter in the future will come about. So he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects internally. So he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects externally. So he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects both internally and externally. And he abides detached, not grasping at anything in the world. And that, monks, is how a monk abides contemplating the mind objects as mind objects in respect of the six internal and external sense bases. Again, monks, a monk abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in respect of the seven factors of enlightenment. How does he do so? Here, monks, if the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is present in himself, a monk knows that it is present. If the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is absent in himself, he knows that it is absent. And he knows how the unarisen enlightenment factor of mindfulness comes to arise, and he knows how the complete development of the enlightenment factor of mindfulness comes about. If the enlightenment factor of investigation of states is present in himself, if the enlightenment factor of energy is present in himself, if the enlightenment factor of delight is present in himself, if the enlightenment factor of tranquility is present in himself, if the enlightenment factor of concentration is present in himself, if the enlightenment factor of equanimity is present in himself, a monk knows that it is present. If the enlightenment factor of equanimity is absent in himself, he knows that it is absent. He knows how the unarisen enlightenment factor of equanimity comes to arise, and he knows how the complete development of the enlightenment factor equanimity comes about. So he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects internally. So he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects externally. So he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects both internally and externally. And he abides detached, not grasping at anything in the world. And that, monks, is how a monk abides contemplating the mind objects as mind objects 
in respect of the seven factors of enlightenment. Again, monks, a monk abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in respect of the four noble truths. How does he do so? Here, a monk knows as it really is. This is suffering. He knows it as it really is. This is the origin of suffering. He knows as it really is. This is the cessation of suffering. He knows as it really is. This is the way of practice leading to the cessation of suffering. And what, monks, is the noble truth of suffering? Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress are suffering. Being attached to the unlove is suffering. Being separated from the loved is suffering. Not getting what one wants is suffering. In short, the five aggregates of grasping are suffering. And what, monks, is birth? In whatever beings of whatever group of beings there is birth, coming to be, coming forth, the appearance of the aggregates, the acquisition of the sense bases, that, monks, is called birth. And what is aging? In whatever beings of whatever group of beings, there is aging, decrepitude, broken teeth, gray hair, wrinkled skin, shrinking with age, decay of the sense faculties, that, monks, is called aging. And what is death? In whatever beings, or whatever group of beings, there is passing away, a removal, a cutting off, a disappearance, a death, a dying, an ending, a cutting off of the aggregates, a discarding of the body, that, monks, is called death. And what is sorrow? Whenever, by any kind of misfortune, someone is affected by something of a painful nature, sorrow, mourning, distress, inward grief, inward woe, that, monks, is called sorrow. And what is lamentation? Whenever, by any kind of misfortune, anyone is affected by something of a painful nature, and there is crying out, lamenting, making much noise for grief, making great lamentation, that, monks, is called lamentation. And what is pain? Whatever bodily painful feeling, bodily unpleasant feeling, painful or unpleasant feeling results from bodily contact, that, monks, is called pain. And what is sadness? Whatever mental painful feeling, mental unpleasant feeling, painful or unpleasant sensation results from mental contact, that, monks, is sadness. And what is distress? Whenever by any kind of misfortune anyone is affected by something of a painful nature, distress, great distress, affliction with distress, with great distress, that, monks, is called distress. And what, monks, is being attached to the unloved? Here, whoever has unwanted, disliked, unpleasant sight objects, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, or mind objects, or whoever encounters ill-wishers, wishers of harm, or of discomfort, of insecurity, with whom they have concourse, intercourse, connection, union, that, monks, is called being attached to the unloved. And what is being separated from the loved? Here, whoever has what is wanted, liked, pleasant sight objects, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, or mind objects, or whoever encounters well-wishers, wishers of good, of comfort, of security, mother or father, or brother or sister, or younger kinsmen, or friends or colleagues, or blood relations, and then is deprived of such concourse, intercourse, connection, or union, that, monks, is called being separated from the loved. And what is not getting what one wants? In being subject to birth, monks, this wish arises. Oh, that we were not subject to birth, that we might not come to birth. But this cannot be gained by wishing. That is not getting what one wants. In beings subject to aging, to disease, to death, to sorrow, lamentation, pain, sadness, and distress, this wish arises. Oh, that we were not subject to aging, etc. 
that we might not come to see these things. But this cannot be gained by wishing. That is not getting what one wants. And how monks, in short, are the five aggregates of grasping suffering? They are as follows. The aggregate of grasping that is form, the aggregate of grasping that is feeling, the aggregate of grasping that is perception, the aggregate of grasping that is mental formations, the aggregate of grasping that is consciousness. These are, in short, the five aggregates of grasping that are suffering. And that, monks, is called the noble truth of suffering. And what, monks, is the noble truth of the origin of suffering? It is that craving which gives rise to rebirth, bound up with pleasure and lust, finding fresh delight now here, now there. That is to say, sensual craving, craving for existence, and craving for non-existence. And where does this craving arise and establish itself? Wherever in the world there is anything agreeable and pleasurable, there this craving arises and establishes itself. And what is there in the world that is agreeable and pleasurable? The eye in the world is agreeable and pleasurable. The ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind in the world is agreeable and pleasurable. And there this craving arises and establishes itself. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, mind objects in the world are agreeable and pleasurable, and there this craving arises and establishes itself. Eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, mind consciousness in the world is agreeable and pleasurable, and there this craving arises and establishes itself. Eye contact, ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, body contact, mind contact, in this world is agreeable and pleasurable, and there this craving arises and establishes itself. Feeling born of eye contact, ear contact, nose contact, body contact, tongue contact, mind contact, in the world is agreeable and pleasurable, and there this craving arises and establishes itself. The perceptions of sights, of sounds, of smells, of tastes, of tangibles, of mind objects in the world is agreeable and pleasurable, and there this craving arises and establishes itself. Volition in regard to sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, mind objects in the world, is agreeable and pleasurable, and there this craving arises and establishes itself. The craving for sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, mind objects in the world, is agreeable and pleasurable, and there this craving arises and establishes itself. Thinking of sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, mind objects in the world, is agreeable and pleasurable, and there this craving arises and establishes itself. Pondering on sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, and mind objects in the world is agreeable and pleasurable, and there this craving arises and establishes itself. And that, monks, is called the noble truth of the origin of suffering. And what, monks, is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering? It is the complete fading away and extinction of this craving. It's forsaking and abandonment. Liberation from it, detachment from it. How does this craving come to be abandoned? How does its cessation come about? Wherever in the world there is anything agreeable and pleasurable, there its cessation comes about. And what is there in the world that is agreeable and pleasurable? The eye in the world is agreeable and pleasurable. The ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind in the world is agreeable and pleasurable. And there this craving comes to be abandoned. There its cessation comes about. Eye consciousness, etc., in the world is agreeable and pleasurable, and there this craving comes to be abandoned, and there its cessation comes about. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tangibles, mind objects in the world are agreeable and pleasurable, and there this craving comes to be abandoned, there its cessation comes about. Eye contact, etc. 
in this world is agreeable and pleasurable. And there this craving comes to an end. There its cessation comes about. And that, monks, is called the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. And what, monks, is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the cessation of suffering? It is just this noble eightfold path, namely, right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And what, monks, is right view? It is monks the knowledge of suffering, the knowledge of the origin of suffering, the knowledge of the cessation of suffering, and the knowledge of the way of practice leading to the cessation of suffering. This is called right view. And what monks is right thought? The thought of renunciation, the thought of non-ill will, the thought of harmlessness. This monks is called right thought. And what monks is right speech? Refraining from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech. This is called right speech. And what monks is right action, refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. This is called right action. And what monks is right livelihood? Here monks, the Aryan disciple, having given up the wrong livelihood, keeps himself by right livelihood. And what monks is right effort? Here monks, a monk rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to prevent the arising of unarisen evil, unwholesome mental states. He rouses his will, strives to overcome evil, unwholesome mental states that have arisen. He rouses his will and strives to produce unarisen, wholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, and to bring them to greater growth for the full perfection of development. This is called right effort. And what monks is right mindfulness? Here monks, a monk abides contemplating body as body, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. He abides contemplating feelings as feelings. He abides contemplating mind as mind. He abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, ardent, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside hankering and fretting for the world. This is right mindfulness. And what monks is right concentration? Here, a monk, detached from his sense desires, detached from unwholesome mental states, enters and remains in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, born of detachment, filled with delight and joy, and with the subsiding of thinking and pondering, by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, he enters and remains in the second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering, born of concentration, filled with delight and joy. And with the fading away of delight, remaining imperturbable, mindful and clearly aware, he experiences himself the joy of which the noble ones say, Happy is he who dwells with equanimity and mindfulness. He enters the third jhana. And having given up pleasure and pain, and with the disappearance of the former gladness and sadness, he enters and remains in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain, and purified by equanimity and mindfulness. This is called right concentration, and that, monks, is called the way of practice leading to the cessation of suffering. So he abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects internally, contemplating mind objects as mind objects externally, contemplating mind objects as mind objects both internally and externally. He abides contemplating arising phenomena in mind objects. He abides contemplating vanishing phenomena in mind objects. He abides contemplating both arising and vanishing phenomena in mind objects. Or else, mindfulness that there are mind objects is present just to the extent necessary for knowledge and awareness. He abides detached, not grasping at anything in the world. 
and that monks is how a monk abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in respect of the four noble truths. Whoever monks should practice these four foundations of mindfulness for just seven years may expect one of two results, either arhatship in this life, or if there should be some substrate left, the state of the non-returner. Let alone seven years, whoever should practice them for just six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, may expect one of two results, either arhatship in this life, or if there should be some substrate left, the state of the non-returner. Let alone whoever should practice them for just seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, half a month, may expect one of two results, etc. Let alone half a month, whoever should practice these four foundations of mindfulness for just one week, may expect one of two results, either arhatship in this life, or if there should be some substrate left, the state of a non-returner. It was said, there is, monks, this one way to the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the gaining of the right path, for the realization of Nibbana, that is to say, the four foundations of mindfulness. And it is for that reason that it was said. Thus the Lord spoke, and the monks rejoiced and were delighted at his words. So that was the Mahasatipatthana Sutra. As you can tell, there is a lot that we can discuss in this sutra, but before we jump in too deep, uh, Docs, do you have any questions about this sutra or anything that comes to mind that you'd like to bring up? Well, one kind of meta question I have is sutta the same word as sutra or what's the difference there? That's a good and important question. So sutta is the Pali word and sutra is the corresponding Sanskrit word. Um, this comes up in a couple other vocabulary terms as well, such as nibbana being the Pali counterpart to nirvana, which is Sanskrit. The reason why this is called the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, even though I refer to it as Sutra sometimes, is that Pali is the lingua franca of, of this canon, of this era of Buddhist texts. Uh, this part, this sutra was written originally in Pali and was uh, collected and copied in Pali, and then later versions translate to Sanskrit. The difference is that Pali is the spoken version of the written version Sanskrit. Uh, Pali was more commonly spoken in India and Nepal at the time, and Sanskrit was this elite written language. And so there was a change in history between how these things were written and compiled and collected. Gotcha. Okay, so I guess the next question is just, what's going on here? Because this is there's definitely a pattern to this. It seems like they're talking in circles and spirals. Like, what is trying to be communicated here? Yeah, that's a good question. A lot of these sutras don't come with context built in. And oftentimes, they have even less context than this one. So what is the purpose of this sutta or sutra here is to outline a very specific and clear and well thought out, well laid out list of instructions for how to engage in meditation. So we've talked about meditation as a practice of Buddhism across many different schools of Buddhism. And um, this is a, an effort by the Buddha to teach his disciples how they ought to go about meditation. 
Meditation and mindfulness are colloquial terms that we might understand in English today, but they are not really actually well understood and well defined terms if you do a deep dive. And it becomes even more fuzzy if you go back in history to 2,500 years ago, roughly, when they were discussing these things and whenever this sutra was circulating and when this teaching was being taught. So this is a, a kind of like a step-by-step uh, list of instructions for how to establish the foundations of mindfulness. Okay. So why exactly this structure then? Like what the... It feels like there's a reason that this stuff is in its repetitive format, but I'm not quite seeing what that result is. Is this a matter of, is this literally intended to be a step-by-step guide? It is, yeah. So in addition to being a step one, step two, step three type of guide, it's also repetitive for the sake of memory and learning. So it's a lot easier to, to memorize this as a formula rather than to memorize sort of off-the-cuff freestyle prose. So if there's a formula, then it's a lot easier for people to to remember it because this sutra was not actually written down until many centuries after the life of the Buddha. So that clears up what my next question was going to be. So this was intended to be memorized. Exactly. Gotcha. It's memorized and recited. And um, in addition to that, uh, that's the primary purpose of this repetitive formulaic business. But in addition to that, I think that there's also a component um, which relates to a term that uh, semantic satiation. Um, Semantic satiation is just a big word that refers to that experience that we often have where if you say a word too many times, it starts to lose its meaning a little bit. If you're listening now and you take the word wall or cup or chair or window or any word at all, and you and you say it 10 or more times, and, and I do mean say it 10 or more times, it has to be a lot of times, then it just starts to feel like a mouth movement. It doesn't start to feel like that word. It starts to sound a little bit like nonsense. And so this is where recitation turns into a meditative practice all on its own. If you are reciting something, you're often not thinking too hard about the meanings and implications and details and important points of what you're saying, you're often working towards the muscle movements, the breathing movements, the mindfulness of your volume and your pitch and tone with what you're reciting. And so if you recite it enough, it becomes like a muscle memory type of thing. And it becomes a a sort of ritual in understanding the emptiness of words and in understanding what this mindfulness state is like. Okay, so let's move into more specific questions. Um, So a couple of terms I spotted that I would like some clarification on. For one, I noticed the word detached used here. And in episode five, is that supposed to be non-attached? Yes, yes. That's sort of a mistranslation. Yeah, okay. So there's another one to note that the translations may not be perfect then. Yeah, you have to imagine, imagine like a European person from, you know, at least a century ago, 
looking at this and they've been well-educated in Pali and they can read Pali very well and understand it, but they just don't really know what is the most accurate way to represent these certain terms. Or if they think that they do, their decision is heavily informed by these categories of mindfulness and detachment that exist already in European and Western cultures. So always be wary of the specific vocabulary terms that you come up with in English translations of these texts, because they're often interpreted a certain way. Translation is always interpretation. And so they're trying to interpret this for you a little bit through the filter of Western culture and Western ideas of mind and self and meditation and things like that. These words already existed in Europe, in Latin Romance languages before Buddhism was translated into these European languages. And it's a, it's a term that was applied to what we're talking about today. So be wary and try and keep a close eye on, you know, maybe meditation is not sitting down and considering quietly, necessarily. That's a, certainly a part of it, but meditation in Buddhism has a little bit more nuance and detail to it. And that's, that's what this text helps, helps show us is that there's, there's a little bit more to the process. It's certainly not a passive process or an inactive process. It's certainly something that you are practicing and cultivating. And as you can tell, there's a lot of things to keep track of. There's a lot of things that will come up that you need to know, that you need to work your mind through. This kind of thing is like a mental exercise. It reads sort of like, okay, then do a jumping jack, then do a sit-up, then do a squat, then do a push-up. And now do that with five-pound weights on your ankles. And now do that with five-pound weights on your ankles and five-pound weights on your wrists. All of that for the mind. All of that as a process that leads to a certain experience of non-attachment, like we've talked about, but also a feeling that you've worked something out and practiced something and made a muscle stronger. And it's a muscle that we don't really think of or use or refer to or think we even have in Western cultures. So the process of memorizing this, chanting this, and then putting this into practice is the point. It, the Part of the reason it's repetitive is to give it more weight for the exercise, I would say. Exactly. Okay. Exactly, yeah. And this is something that you see a lot in the early uh, Buddhist texts. The early Buddhist texts are very dry, but not in a negative way. Not to say that this is unfun for me to read, but it's very dry and clear and explicit. This is very common in these early Buddhist ones. It gives specific instructions, and it's not presented in terms of wild and trippy stories or supernatural occurrences or like contradictory and esoteric prose that comes up in much later texts in like the Mahayana schools. It clearly and formulaically tells you how to sit and meditate. And it grounds that in terms of Buddhist views and doctrines about the world and ourselves and our place in it. And so it's an interesting teaching tool. Some people do better whenever you give them the facts, a list of facts. Some people do better whenever you give them a very fantastical story or an interesting anecdote that demonstrates the fact. And this early text, this Mahasatipatthana Sutra, this is 
more like the list of facts, more like the explicit telling you like it is type of thing. Okay. So there's a lot of specific terminology that comes up, but the one, so I'm skipping towards kind of the middle of the document here, but uh, of course, a spot in here that I think needs more clarification. I'm just going to quote from the sutta. Please do. Here, a monk knows a lustful mind as lustful, a mind free from lust as free from lust, a hating mind as hating, a mind free from hate as free from hate, a deluded mind as deluded, an undiluted mind as undiluted, a contracted mind as contracted, a distracted mind as distracted, a developed mind as developed, an undeveloped mind as undeveloped, a surpassed mind as surpassed, an unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed. It goes on. The... Most of these I get, but there are a couple of terms here that need de- defining for me. What does a contracted mind mean? A contracted mind is a mind that you believe only exists in your head. So contracted would mean that it only focuses in on itself. Whenever in English we say somebody is in their own head, that is a contracted mind. Okay. Developed mind. Same question. What are we asking about here? A developed mind would be someone who has attained realizations about reality, about themselves, attained realizations through the work that they've done via this meditative practice, via study of the texts, via what have you, via good behavior is another example. And so developed is like someone who understands this material and undeveloped is someone who looks at this and they're like, I have no idea what's going on. This is all very confusing. I don't know what to do with any of the information I've been presented with. And that specific passage and other passages are saying, look, I'm not trying to tell you how to understand something because you can't, like, I can't make somebody understand something. Understanding is something that happens to somebody. It's not something that anyone makes happen to anybody else. So rather than getting stuck on your being developed and thinking you know everything or being undeveloped and not understanding anything, just know yourself as developed or undeveloped. So this is, it's it's establishing what my professor in undergrad called first degree body-mind awareness, which is that lowest, most coarse level where You don't know what you don't know, but you do know that there are things that you don't know. You don't know how to expand your mind and uncontract your mind, but you know that it's contracted. If that, if that makes sense, that's kind of what is being presented here. Yeah, that helps a little bit and also helps with the term contracted mind, because when I think of contract as a word, I'm thinking contract as in a thing you sign. An agreement, Uh, yeah. And this is actually meaning as in, like... Like muscle contraction. Muscle contraction. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Um, Another phrase I spotted that I'm a little uncertain of how to interpret. This is kind of in the middle of it. I'm just going to start reading again. Again, monks. Monk abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in respect of the six internal and external sense bases. How does he do so? Here a monk knows the I, 
knows sight objects and knows whether fetter arises dependent on the two. I was following along right until we get to that last bit. Knows whatever fetter arises dependent on the two. The two what? I, I missed something here. The internal and the external. Ah, okay. So it is important that you bring that up because Buddhism is certainly a textual tradition of lists. There's the four foundations of mindfulness, the five aggregates, the six sense bases, the seven factors of awakening, the eightfold path, etc., etc. Tons and tons of these numbered lists. And they don't clearly, um, at least in terms that maybe beginning scholars of Buddhism or people who are just interested in Buddhism, they're not presenting these lists very clearly. So I wanted to mention the six sense bases. The six senses in Buddhism are the five senses that Westerners commonly hold, plus the sense of mind. So that's the six senses. The six sense bases are those senses, plus the fields of which they can sense things. So eyes plus everything that can be seen. Ears plus everything that can be heard. Nose plus everything that can be smelled. Tongue plus everything that can be tasted. Body plus everything that can be touched. Mind plus everything that can be cognized by mind. There is a third layer to make this a total of 18, which is a different term that we don't need to get into here, but it's eyes plus everything that can be seen plus what you're seeing in that moment. And on and on it goes for the whole six senses. So when you see mind objects, think of things that can be touched, except it's things that can be sensed by the minds. And whenever you think of, or whenever you see a mind object, a specific one, that is whatever you are perceiving in that moment. So there's the coming together of three things in any sort of cognizing that's going on here. Those three things are the sense organ, the sense object, and the sense field. The field of everything that can be sensed by that organ. And so that's a formula that's important to understand, especially in this text, because they harp on that list a lot, a lot. They harp on that list and repeat that list a lot as a teaching tool, because who is going to memorize, you know, the six sense bases or the 18 sense bases if you don't list them in a very, very concise and formulaic way? Okay. So just being clarified that the two there represents, is uh, referring to rather internal and external helps me understand that paragraph a fair bit. So yes. that's good. Let's see. Oh yes, the stress. This is again about a little over halfway through the document. And what is distress? Whenever by any kind of misfortune anyone is affected by something of a painful nature, distress, great distress, affliction with distress, with great distress, that monks is called distress. That entire sentence is using distress to define distress. I'm, I am not following here. Yeah, so there are a few places, not only that one, which, in, in which the Buddha takes the name of a feeling, the name of an experience, and he defines it for his own argumentative purposes. 
And when I say argumentative, I don't mean like I'm right, you're right, no, you're wrong. For the sake of argument. Yeah, yeah. He's defining it as any good philosopher will define his terms. And to that end, I think that he is appealing to the monk's own lived experiences. He knows that they are sentient beings and therefore they go through something sometime, something that's not fun sometime. This is another translation thing. He is defining distress as anytime you feel bad. And he's having to use a compound term in order to explain that. This term is cognate with dukkha, but is not the same as dukkha, which we've had before. I can't remember what the term itself actually is in this specific instance, but it's definitely a a linguistic problem that has come up in the translation into English. But I can understand how it would be difficult to like unpack, hey, he's you can't use the word in the definition of the word. But he's trying to refer, in this case, specifically to all those times where you are afflicted with some unwanted feeling or experience or situation. And he's trying to list those things off as a definition for that feeling. And he does this with other ones as well. He makes a point to define these terms like distress and others like that, but he avoids defining other terms that are important in Buddhism, like the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the seven factors of awakening, the four noble truths, etc. He avoids giving those sort of definitions for those terms because those might be a little bit higher minded. Those might be a little bit more complicated. These ones are things that the monks can start with. He's starting with something that they know, something that they would understand. And then he's going to build up to four noble truths, five hindrances, five aggregates, etc. Okay. So once again, I suppose I should get used to this linguistic issues being a common occurrence as I'm reading through these, I would guess. Yes, and there are many different versions of these of these texts in which different translators take different routes and stick with them. And I think that one good way to overcome that hurdle as a young beginning student of Buddhism, someone who's just interested in it, is to read these different versions and compare. Have them both up at the same time, because then you'll have three or four different versions of the same thing being said, so that you can get a much better sense of what the actual thing means and triangulate what is trying to be communicated. And that way, you can you can do this without having to learn Pali. Learning Pali is much harder than reading the same thing three times. And so I definitely, for this episode and future episodes where we read one of these texts, I definitely encourage the use of multiple versions because that'll make things a lot clearer. Okay. Well, that touches on everything that I wanted to touch on. So... What else do we need to be taking from this text that I didn't get? Yeah, so there are a couple of things that um, I jotted down that I wanted to bring up. And feel free to chime in on these as they come up. Um, So all sutras and suttas, almost all of them begin with this, thus have I heard intro. So they will say, thus have I heard, and they will say, 
the Buddha was staying in this or that valley with this or that person and doing this or that while he was there. Um, that's a very formulaic intro, and it is speaking to the fact that the Buddha did not write any of this down himself. The Buddha did not write anything. I want to stress that point. The Buddha did not write anything, and his first generation of disciples did not write anything. If we look over to Christianity, obviously Jesus didn't write anything, but his first generation of disciples did. Paul, Peter, etc. John, Luke. And so in Buddhism, the first generation of disciples didn't write anything. And the earliest, earliest texts that we have don't come up until about 150 years after the alleged death of the Buddha. So be aware that everything that you read in the Buddhist textual tradition is far removed from the actual life of the Buddha by about 150 years. So there is a little bit of telephone game going on. Now, how severe and how, how distant this telephone game is from the source material, we can never know because it was never written down. But uh, certainly be aware that these things change over time, even if this was a well-preserved oral tradition and still to this day is a well-preserved oral tradition, be aware that there are things that can come up, things that can be changed, things that can be misremembered and then filled back in, etc. So thus have I heard is an important point, and it points to this fact that the Buddha didn't write anything down for himself. Right. Another thing that I wanted to bring up, some important themes in this text, they include cognizing things as they are, mind as mind, body as body, feeling as feeling, etc. This kind of thing sounds easy and is easy to say, easy to teach, easy to recite, but it's difficult to do given the doctrines of emptiness and non-self. I challenge you to read this text from the perspective of contemplating body as body without contemplating body as self. How can we as Westerners, who have grown up with the René Descartes Cartesian dualism of mind and body, not contemplate mind as self, not contemplate body as self, as vessel for mind which is self? That's the, that's the central challenge of this text, is to establish mindfulness that is not grounded in terms of having a self. And by self, I mean a, an instantiation of you that is separate from the instantiation of anyone else and is thus unchanging and eternal and permanent. That, is, that, that plays into some of the important terms that come up in this text, such as the five aggregates. The five aggregates are listed early in this text, and they are form, sensations, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness. Instead of having a self, we have five aggregates. Aggregates are a gathering of stuff. That's what the term aggregates means. It's a gathering up a pile or an accumulation of stuff. And these five aggregates is what we are in this life. And our karmic energy, our karmic behavior, the store of all of our karma across all of our infinite births and rebirths, propels these aggregates to stay together, to rearrange, to aggregate in the first place. And thus nirvana is complete and final dissolution of these aggregates. 
So it means a dissolution of a person's form, a dissolution of their sensations, of their perceptions, of their mental formations, and of their consciousness. That's why nirvana, the word nirvana, is cognate with a term that means to blow out, like blowing out a candle, blowing out a flame, or to be blown out. It is because these things dissolve. It goes from being a lit flame that emits light to being vapors. So that is the, the challenge of this text, is to have an experience where you start to understand the nature of self as not existing, as being this collection of five aggregates. Okay, so I get the five aggregates up until consciousness. So how is Buddhism defining consciousness in here? That's a really good question. All of these other ones make a lot of sense yeah, up I, until I, that point. I know what sensations means. Like that's a word that I can understand, but mm -hmm. where and, and consciousness is something that's much harder to define and I would like to hear how they do it. Yeah, so it's very different from the Western definition of consciousness. The Western definition of consciousness is fuzzy enough as is, but what's common among all these definitions is having the awareness of self having the awareness of awareness of self, being able to pass a mirror test where you look in the mirror and recognize that it's not another thing in the mirror. It's actually your own reflection. Being able to have thoughts, being able to improvise when given stimuli, things like that. The Buddhist definition of consciousness in this case is a lot more faceted and nuanced. To, just to give an impression of how faceted and nuanced it is, the, the class where I first read this sutra in grad school, the entire class was aimed at defining consciousness. <laughs> what oh, wow. is consciousness in the, Buddha, in the Buddhist context? So there's a lot going on. So there's, there's this, I just asked the question of an entire college course. An entire grad school course. Grad yes. school course even. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we can't get into all of it right now, but okay. I, I would say that this consciousness, in addition to being one's sentience, in addition to that is also the co-presence of the past. Co-presence meaning, you know, your sentience is present and with that is the presence of your karmic past. Memory, maybe? Close, close. Memory is a part of your sentience. Your karmic past is actually... I would say the collective storage of all of the plus and minus of your past rebirths. So the plus would be all the good karma, the minus would be all the bad karma. And plus, minus, and also zero. There is such a thing as karmically neutral things. So it's the collection of all of the plus, minus, and zero from all of your infinite past lives, however they, however they are. And because that is part of consciousness, whenever a being becomes enlightened, they become omniscient. The reason they are omniscient is because they can access all of this co-presence of the past and understand it and see it as it is and cognize it. It's something that is covered over for us. My, my professor used to say that unenlightened individuals, their past lives, their karmic past, and the karmic past of others is paved over and the pavement is an illusion of self the pavement is the illusion that the five aggregates are more than just gatherings up of 
entropic forces that they're not really related to each other and they're not really permanent and they have no reason to stick together. So this consciousness is sentience plus your entire, entire karmic past, good karma, bad karma, neutral karma. Okay. I suppose that's going to have to be good enough since it's otherwise a graduate school course. But exactly. for now, I think that's going to that's gonna do. So let's move on. Uh, what else did you want to cover? Yeah, so another thing that I wanted to look at in this text is the five hindrances. The five hindrances come up in, in an unnamed way, but they do come up in this text. The five hindrances are sensory desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and doubt. These five hindrances, if the name is hindrance, the question is, what are they hindering? They are hindering mindfulness. They are hindering awakening. They are part of the pavement that paves over reality as it is, reality being empty and impermanent. And so all of these hindrances must be overcome in the practice of meditation. This particular text takes a stance on how to overcome those hindrances. Other texts take a different stance. The stance of this text is that this meditative practice is a way to overcome these hindrances. Other texts say you must overcome these hindrances before you start. And the reason for that is that you can't establish qualitative mindfulness if you are afflicted with any of these hindrances. Sensory desire is something that, even in a non-sexual way, every human being deals with. Sensory desire, if it's too hot, you desire for it to be cold. If you are thirsty, you want water. That's a sensory desire. These are all things that we don't even think about that come up in our minds day in and day out. Of course, ill will, if we're sitting in traffic and someone cuts us off, we have ill will towards them. If it's raining in the morning and we don't want to get out of bed, sloth and torpor. If we are anxious, restlessness and worry. If we doubt that what we're doing is valuable. And, and when I say what we're doing, I mean this meditative practice. If we doubt what we're doing or reading or studying in Buddhism is actually the truth, is actually enlightening and awakening, we have doubt about those things. And so all of these things must be overcome in order to fully give oneself over to meditation. That is the stance of other texts. This text says that you can do this meditative practice as a means to overcome it. And I believe that. I believe this, this text in that argument because these things such as restlessness and worry, such as ill will, these are things that can come to be stilled, be labeled, and be passed on by the mind through this meditative practice. If we are engaging in vipassana, which is what this is, we're engaging in insight meditation, then we can study and examine and turn over in our hands all of these experiences and then set them down and not have to pick them up again. That's the purpose of this meditation is to set, set things down and not have to pick them up again. And that is a very important benefit of meditation, I think. I guess that brings to mind the idea of naming things as they are. There's exactly. a lot of that in this sutta, and by being able to recognize and name them, you put them down afterward. The whole, like, this is 
something that I've struggled with as well, as far as keeping one's mind in the right place in meditation. It's real easy for me to go off on the in a tangent in my mind. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, while I'm sitting there, something comes up, and I end up following that trail. And I guess a big Part of this sutta is recognizing those moments as the hindrances. Exactly. It could be the hindrances, or it could just be any distraction at all. It could be any experience you have. So if you are in a room that is 75 degrees Fahrenheit, and you're meditating, and you have an experience of 75 degrees Fahrenheit on your skin, that's not necessarily a hindrance. But you should be able to recognize feeling as feeling, recognize the cessation of feeling, etc. Going back to that formula that this Mm. text uses. And I think that that's very useful. I think that is why Vipassana meditation has actually taken off in the West. Uh, This is pretty easy to understand, harder to do, but definitely easy to understand as a Westerner observing thoughts and experiences and feelings, knowing them, understanding them as they are, and passing them on. That's a huge, huge, huge benefit of of this. And that speaks to the next point. If this is done enough, if this is cultivated as a practice, then a person will have the seven factors of awakening. These seven factors named in this sutra are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, relaxation, concentration, and equanimity. Now, you might be thinking, this is an instruction manual for meditation. Why is mindfulness one of the fruits of this action? Why is this one of the things that, you know, if you, if you reap the foundations of, of this practice, then you sow mindfulness. Mindfulness is actually being used here to mean concentration. So focus is probably a little bit better. Mindful focus. But even if we take it just in this word, mindfulness, someone who meditates is mindful. I think that it's kind of a, goes without saying, sort of benefit of meditating. Meditation is mindfulness, and mindfulness is meditation, if we're using the English terms. And thus, someone who writes all the time is a writer. Someone who plays guitar all the time is a guitarist. Someone who meditates all the time is mindful. It just sort of is the very first, most coarse level, most fundamental level. Like the benefit of meditating is you become a mindful person. So that's an important part. And then specifically with this Vipassana meditation, there's an emphasis on the investigation. Investigation is what someone is doing when they're turning over an experience in their hands, metaphorically. So you have a thought or an experience or a feeling, and you turn it over in your hands. You're trying to figure it out and understand it in terms of reality as it is, whatever the thing is, exactly as it is. Investigation as a means of increasing your wisdom, perfecting your wisdom. And then energy and joy... Energy is a short trip away from restlessness and worry. So this is a very specific type of energy. This energy is 
in Japanese, it's referred to as genki. Genki meaning healthy, bright, content and peaceful, but also dynamic and alive. It doesn't mean energy as in I've had four or five hour energy drinks and I'm ready to stay up for the next four days writing my thesis. Different kinds of energy. Gotcha. And, and then of course, joy, relaxation. Relaxation in this case is meant as um, cessation or stillness of mental experiences. So this is another type of meditation that um, we haven't really gotten into before, which is called samatha meditation, which is just slowing physical processes and mental processes. Regardless of what type of medica- or meditation that you do, you will experience relaxation as a benefit. And then concentration and equanimity. For those that don't know, equanimity is um, regarding all feelings and experiences as what they are, as equal and interpenetrating and fundamentally the same because of their emptiness. I have a question on these. You said before that mindfulness could be better said as focus here. But then mm-hmm. there's concentration as well. Where What's the difference here? This concentration is, I believe that the Pali term is samadhi. Samadhi is the habitual practice of concentration. Samadhi is oneness between the person who is cognizing and what they are cognizing. So samadhi is, is a meditative practice that actually comes up in later texts as not being necessarily just the goal, but also the practice that you do to get to the goal. And that is a unification between mind and mind object, eye and sight object, nose and nose object, etc. Through through the practice of meditation and the shaking off of your delusion of self. To offer a little bit more contrast with the previous term, The previous term, mindfulness, is smirti in Sanskrit. Smirti is referring more to, you might call it the the moment of thought. So there's a time aspect as well as a mental aspect. Mental meaning, in this case, your sensation and your formations and your perceptions all going on in this sixth sense of mind. Whereas concentration is a lot more long-term. Okay. Um, to, to use an analogy to make this simpler, uh, in martial arts, you practice in a dojo, uh, let's say, four hours a week. Those specific four hours represent smirti. Those, that's the time that you're devoting to that practice and you're doing that practice. Concentration is the lifestyle where you know martial arts and you practice martial arts okay. without fighting in a dojo, if that makes sense. A bit. I'm starting to see it. So concentration is a much more long-term thing, whereas mindfulness is in the moment? In the case of this sutra and these, the use of these terms, I would say so. Okay. To make it more clear as to why I'm a little bit hesitant to say all yes or all no with these is because in this grad school course where we're trying to define consciousness... In the process, you have to define mindfulness and concentration, and these sutras take all different perspectives on them and write different things about them and how they relate to each other. 
And so I would say that in the usages of Smriti and Samadhi in this sutra, specifically this one, it's speaking to thought moments, mindfulness, and long-term unification of cognizer and cognized, which is Samadhi. So it's a little bit of a different, <laughs> it's a little bit of a different way to think about these things. And it changes. It'll be different in different sutras we read. Oh, boy. Um, and we'll have to be mindful of that. Okay. Well, expect questions when I find spots that don't agree with each other. Absolutely. That concludes our discussion of the Mahasatipatana Sutta. I hope you enjoyed, and uh, this was a very special episode, and I'm glad we got the chance to do it. And let us know what other questions you might have about this sutta in the, in the comments, and we'll try to address them as they come up. And we hope you enjoyed. Likewise, thank you for listening. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Our email is bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Bright Buddhism. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.